Uh, it's a pleasure to be here with you. I like to uh, tell a story um, <clears throat> before I kind of uh, share the word of God. But uh, there was this one Sunday, I was pastor of Manhattan for many, many years. There's one Sunday where we had a Sunday off. And one of the things that we like to do when we do that is to go to other churches, especially churches of different traditions, whether it's denominational traditions or ethnic racial background traditions. And so we went to a friend of mine's church up in Harlem called Renaissance Harlem. And uh, uh, the pastor who preached that Sunday preached this great sermon. I mean, it was biblical. It was, it was energetic. It was, you know, convicting and all that. It was this great, great sermon. And then literally right after the last note of the song of the service ended, my third child, who's now, who at the time was probably about eight years old, looked up to me and with like 100% of his eight-year-old earnestness, said, hey, Dad, how come you don't preach like that? (laughs) And so, you know, I'm trying to give him the benefit of the doubt because I'm a gracious and patient father. And so I said, well, I'm curious. What do you mean by that? And he said, you know, like, interesting and funny. (laughs) And let me tell you, nothing cuts deeper than eight-year-old earnestness because he was not joking at all. That boy almost walked home from church that day. We don't even own a car, so I wasn't even going to swipe him into the subway. I'm like, you are on your own. Uh, but today I can promise neither to be interesting nor funny, apparently. Uh, but I hope I can open up this passage for us. Uh, because I really believe that this call to be salt and light is an essential call for the moment that we're in. So even this initiative for, around Bless the City... Uh, the desire to be out working with some of these partners that you could see out in the lobby later on today, but to be out in the places of hurt and darkness and decay in the, in the world and to be salt and light in those places, I actually think is probably more important than ever. Uh, and so let's turn to this passage. Uh, this might be familiar for some of you. Uh, this comes in the context of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached. And so let me read Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So this message from, uh, that I'm about to give you from this passage, in my mind, in my heart has taken on a certain level of urgency uh, because I believe the church in America is in something of a crisis. So if you read the polls, uh, Christianity is very steeply in decline in the U.S., Uh, There are fewer and fewer people who choose to identify as a Christian, and the younger the people are, the less likely they are to be uh, Christians. People are leaving the church at perhaps an alarming rate. Part of the reason why I do what I do is because I want to give my life to the planting of the kinds of churches that a younger generation, like my children's generation, will actually have a shot at showing up in. Um, In a time of deep polarization, we're seeing how the church has not actually done the, work, the reconciling work of the kingdom of God, but has oftentimes just taken partisan sides. 
Uh, in a time where there was a Me Too movement, there's a Church Too movement, and perhaps the church has become far too conformed to the ways of this world. I remember talking with a friend of mine in Manhattan, and she was saying, look, Abe, there was a time, you know, even in Manhattan, people, the main barrier that people had to Christianity, and by the way, that might be you. If you're, if you're here and you're wrestling through the claims of Christianity, or you would describe yourself as somebody who might be deconstructing their faith because of everything that you're seeing, uh, just want to say I'm glad that you're here with us. Um, but she was saying this. She said, you know, there was a time when, you know, our, my friends in Manhattan, the main barrier to Christianity was, is this true? Can modern, sophisticated, educated people believe that somebody rose again from the dead, that he was born of a virgin and did these miracles? That there was a time that where that intellectual barrier was the primary barrier for many to the Christian faith. But she was saying, that's not the barrier anymore. My friends aren't thinking about Christianity. Uh, and when they do, the question that they're asking is not, is Christianity true? Uh, they're not even asking, is Christianity good for our society? They're asking, is Christianity safe for someone who's vulnerable like me? And that question really struck me because it said there's a different kind of apologetic, a different kind of witness, this call to be salt and light that is crucially important when the church and Christianity, not only is its goodness questioned, and I think for good reasons, but is this going to be a safe place for the vulnerable? What has happened that those who followed Jesus, the one who attracted the most vulnerable in a society, what has happened that the followers of this Messiah have come to be known for the exact opposite. And if you look at the early church, the early church was face, facing conditions that were far you know, less hospitable than the conditions that the church faces today. And yet that early church, what were they marked by? They were marked by an attractiveness, an astounding compassion, a clear sense of being different, that there was a power to those lives. It's what one preacher called a gospel glow that emanated from that early church. And I think we're in a season where the church needs to very seriously ask the question, how do we return to that gospel glow? Or maybe even a more simple question, how do we get back to Jesus that the culture wars are real, that there are complex issues at stake, that Christians disagree about lots of things, but can we get back to Jesus? And so I love this Bless the City campaign and this Bless the City Summit because it says, what would it look like if Jesus were to come to Atlanta today and he were to walk in Atlanta the same way he walked in Galilee? Where would Jesus go this week that you never would go to? Who would Jesus be with that you never want to be near to? What would it look like if the church today were known to be those who followed closely on the heels of their Savior, who went to the places that we see Jesus going to in the New Testament? 
where would you go? He would, that's, that's a hard question to wrestle with, isn't it? It's one that we ask all of our church planters in our training. Think about the neighborhood that you're trying to plant in. Where would Jesus be that you don't want to go? Because one theologian said this, the deepest motive for being on mission, the deepest motive for blessing the city, for being out there, the deepest motive for that is the desire to be with Jesus where he is. Where are you going to run into Jesus? Well, you're going to run into Jesus where the brokenness and the hurt and the woundedness and the rejection, that's where you're going to find him. So let's look at this call to be salt and light. And I hope you sense a little bit of my urgency here. But I want to look at first uh, what this call assumes. Secondly, we'll look at what it means. And then thirdly, we'll look at what it's going to require. Okay, so what it assumes, what it means, and what it's going to require. So first, let's ask what it assumes. So Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth. He says, you're the light of the world. And these two metaphors will control this entire uh, section of the text. But Jesus is, is assuming something that I think it's very easy for us to forget. We can forget the assumption that in order to be salt, there's something that needs to be true of you. In order to be light, there's something that needs to be true of you. And the thing that Jesus assumes here is he assumes that Christians are going to be different from the world. That Christians are going to be the people who are not trying to be conformed to the things of the world. That Christians are going to be the type of people who aren't afraid to be different from those around them. That Christians are going to be those who are not looking to fit in and become invisible. He assumes that Christians are going to be the kinds of people who are going to be different from the world. And in fact, if you look at the text, what's the greatest danger that is posed for salt and for light? Well, the greatest danger for salt in verse 13 is what happens if it loses its saltiness? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. The moment that salt loses its difference, it becomes worthless and needs to be trampled under feet. What's the greatest danger for light? That light, for fear of being different and disruptive to the darkness, gets placed under a bowl. And what happens when you place a candle underneath a bowl? It sucks all the oxygen out and the candle goes out. That the assumption here is that Christians are those who are going to be different. That the danger, the greatest danger in this text for the disciple is the temptation to avoid, deny, or downplay their difference in order to be just like others. It's an abdication of the fundamental call of what it means to follow Jesus. Salt and light cannot benefit their environment unless they're different. Now, this difference, by the way, is not just being different for its own sake. Some of the, like the most annoying people to hang out with are those who are just trying to be different for difference sake. But this call to be different is based on a belief in not just difference for its own sake, but it's based on this belief of an alternate conformity. You're being conformed to an alternate standard, an alternate set of beliefs, an alternate value. And that alternate conformity is what's going to make you different. So uh, Dr. King, who, you know, I'm in Atlanta, so in, in his birthplace, he has an incredible sermon on this. It's based on Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. It's called Not Transform Nonconformist is the title of the sermon. And in it, he talks about <clears throat> this need for Christians to not be passively well-adjusted to our society, 
But he says Christians need to be those who are creatively maladjusted to the world around. And so here's what he writes. He writes this. I can get to that quote here. Okay. He says this. Our world needs a dedicated circle of transformed nonconformists. Our planet teeters on the brink of annihilation. Dangerous passions of pride and hatred and selfishness are enthroned in our lives. And men do reverence before false gods of nationalism and materialism. The saving of our world from pending doom will come not through the complacent adjustment of the conforming majority, but through the creative maladjustment of a non-conforming minority. We must make a choice. Will we continue to march to the drumbeat of conformity and respectability, or will we, listening to the beat of a more distant drum move to its echoing sounds? Will we, risking criticism and abuse, march to the soul-saving music of eternity? I love that imagery. Friends, have you heard the cadences and the rhythm and the drumbeat, the soul-saving music of eternity? Have you heard the rhythms of that kingdom so deeply that it's gotten into your bones? Can you hear the cadences of the kingdom of God so clearly? Is the volume up so high on the music of eternity that it's this beat that sets your life dancing? Do you hear it? Do you feel it in your chest? Has it sunk deep into your bones? That this call to be different is a call to have the music of eternity, to have the music of the kingdom of God so deep in you that no matter the siren song that the world and the culture might be playing, that it's this song that's setting the cadence of your life. Do you know what that's like? It was apparently Frederick Nietzsche who said this. He says, those who dance are judged to be mad by those who can't hear the music. Isn't that a beautiful image? Those who dance are judged to be mad by those who can't hear the music. Let me ask this question. If you're a Christian here today, are there friends in your life that have seen you dancing and have asked, is this person mad? Or have you been content to conform, that that conform to the majority, to walk to the drumbeat of respectability? One of the things that we do in our family, we've got four kids, they're all a little bit older now, high school down to elementary school and one of the things that we started many years ago, and this is one of these small practices. I always tell people, I feel like we've been like above average parents. So we're not great parents. We're not terrible. We're like slightly above average. But this was like the one thing that I'm like, oh, I think we did something right. I think we did one thing right. This feels great. Uh, but one of the things that we started many, many years ago, something that we call praying feet. <clears throat> and so what we do is whoever the first person is that needs to be out the door, the whole family gathers just inside the door and we put one foot into a circle 
Uh, and I say a prayer and it literally lasts 30 seconds, which is why I think we were able to do it consistently. It literally lasts 30 seconds, but we all put one foot in the circle. And before the first person leaves out the door, uh, I say a prayer that goes something like this. I say, Lord, you're about to send us out into your world. Help us to keep in step with your spirit and not march to the drumbeat of conformity. Help us to be joyfully different because we've tasted the love of Jesus and so that the world can know that there is hope. And that phrase, joyfully different, always sticks with me because this call that Jesus is giving to be transformed nonconformist, to be salt and light, he's not asking you to be fearfully different. He's not asking you to be angrily different, defensively different, self-righteously different. He's asking you to be joyfully different from those around you. That you hear the cadence, you hear the rhythm, you hear the beat, and it's setting your life dancing and people can see the dance of the kingdom. They can't, maybe cannot hear the beat, but they can see the dance of the kingdom in your life. But here is the question. And I've come from New York. You all look like wonderful people. I've not come here to insult you. What I'm about to say might feel insulting. But the question is this. Do you know God's word well enough so that no matter what siren song is being played. It's the drumbeat of the kingdom of heaven that's setting the cadence of your life. I don't think you do. I don't think I do. Have you ever tried to sing a song that you love while another song's playing in the car? Do you know the word of God deep? Is, is it so deep in your bones that it doesn't matter what's playing? That that's the song that's setting the cadence of your life. So <clears throat> I'm Korean American. And part of what comes along with being a Korean American is a deep love for karaoke. Uh, <clears throat> Korean Americans do karaoke a little bit different from our Japanese friends. So our Japanese friends, it's bar and you sing in front of strangers. I would never inflict my singing on strangers. Would never do that. But Koreans, what we do is we get, you get your own room. So you get just to sing with your own friends and family. So it's a lot less lower stakes. So that's why I do it. I would never do that. I could do this. Um, and we love karaoke. <clears throat> now, the secret to karaoke is uh, you want to have a couple of people who could really sing because they sing and you're like, wow, they crushed that. That sounded, that was amazing. But you don't want to go with all people who could really sing well because once one of those two people go, you're like, well, we're shutting down the night. We're putting the mics away because that's it. Ain't nobody going to follow that. Uh, you need also somebody like me who brings enthusiasm <laughs> because after those two go, I'd be like, I don't care. I'll sing. And I will sing the most profoundly mediocre take on some of the best songs. And then all of you would be like, oh, if he could do that, I could totally go next. Right? So that's my life. So my family, I've become known in my family for at least once in, the, in, in a night when we go to karaoke, picking a song that I think I really know, that I think I'm going to crush 
and taking the mic and knowing like two lines in the chorus only. So most recently, I think this was for my wife's birthday, we had to go as a family. And, and, uh, and so I was like, oh, I've got my song for tonight. And I do this every time, but for some reason, when I walk into that room, I forget all of that. And I'm like, oh, I know what, this is my song. It's my jam. It's what I've been listening to when I'm running. I love every time it comes on, like I just get, like, this is totally my jam. I'm going to crush it tonight. Church, do you know what song I picked? I picked the song Despacito. <laughs> so a couple of things about that song. First, for those of you who don't know, it is entirely in Spanish, and I speak no Spanish. But I was convinced I could crush this song. Secondly, right after finishing singing that song, my teenage daughter comes up to me. She goes, Dad, maybe don't Google the lyrics. So I Googled the lyrics. That is not a song a father should be singing at karaoke with his kids. But here's the point. Do you know God's word so deeply that you would crush it at karaoke? I'm going to bet that most of you are just like me walking into that karaoke room. You, you're convinced you know it. Maybe you grew up winning all the Bible trivia games. You're convinced you know it. Until the time comes and the music or the world around you is singing. And I'm telling you right now, you probably don't know it the way that you think you do. Do you know it all the way down into your bones? Because if the drumbeat of heaven isn't getting into your bones, something is. If that's not the loudest song in your heart, if your life is not tuned into the cadence, the, the frequency of that song, Something else is. And then for some reason, we're surprised that a Christian is no different from those around them. Do you know the word of God so deeply that the drumbeat of the kingdom of God is getting into your bones? So that's the assumption. It's the assumption that the Christian will be joyfully different from those around their lives dancing to a different beat. Is that true of you? Secondly, what it means. And so I want to just look at very quickly at the metaphors of salt and light. And this is a fairly famous passage. So some of you may have heard some of these explanations before, but let me go through them very quickly so we understand what Jesus is getting at here. Uh, when Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth, let's start there. Uh, in ancient times, one of the main purposes of salt, many of you may know, was for the purposes of preservation. So it was a preservative. So without uh, refrigeration, you had to find a way to keep food from going bad. And so when Jesus tells his disciples, you are the salt of the earth, that almost certainly is the first image that would have come to mind. They would have heard Jesus saying, oh, in order to be a follower of Jesus, it means that we're supposed to go out into the culture and we're supposed to go out in, into all the ways that a culture can go bad, go into the places of decay in our culture, and work to be a preservative. You're the salt of the earth. But in Jesus' time, the salt was also used uh, in medicine. It was used for its healing properties. It was an antiseptic. 
And so also, so almost certainly, the disciples were heard Jesus saying, not only do you need to go to the places of decay in the world, but you also need to go to the places of wounds and bruising. And you're supposed to go into those places and be an agent of healing and restoration. But salt was also, just like it is mostly in our day today, back then was also, of course, used as a seasoning. And what I love about salt is that salt works a little bit different from, let's say, hot sauce. Now, I love hot sauces. So I love hot sauces of every kind. I love Cholula, Tapatio, I like Sriracha, Tabasco, Texas Pete, Gochujang, Laogan, Ma, like you name it. If I've had it, I will love it. I love hot sauce. But hot sauce works differently from salt, doesn't it? What does hot sauce do? Let's be honest. Hot sauce covers over a multitude of culinary sins. <laughs> so it doesn't matter what you have in front of you, hot sauce will cover over it. But that's not what salt does, is it? What does salt do? Salt draws out the best of what's already there. Now think about this for a second. When Jesus says to the Christian, you're the salt of the earth, what he's saying is you're not the hot sauce of the earth. Don't cover over what's there with some, like some kind of Christianized version of whatever. It's you're the salt of the earth. Enter into society, into culture, and draw out all the goodness and the beauty, all the loveliness, all the flavor that you see there. See, this means in part, this is why you thinking about your work in light of your faith, if you're a Christian, is so crucial for you to be in your workplace and say, what does it mean for me to enhance, to draw out the beauty and the goodness, to be a culture maker, not just a culture critiquer, to draw out the goodness, to enhance what's beautiful. And so the question for you, as we think about this Bless the City Summit, is what, would, what, what does it look like for you to work against social decay in the city of Atlanta? There's some great options, I think, out there. What does it look like for you to be an agent of healing precisely in the place of woundedness that you see here in the city? What does it look like for you to, in your workplace and in your neighbor, to draw out and enhance the goodness that's already there? That's what it means to be salt. Now, very quickly, light of the world. What does that mean? So light is a much more straightforward, I think, uh, metaphor that I think most of us intuitively get. Without, throughout the Bible, light was a metaphor for the truth. And so the first thing that most, most obvious about light is that light illuminates. So light will shed brightness into the darkness. And so part of what that means is being a disciple of Jesus means that you're bringing truth to bear in a way that makes sense of the entire world around you. So it's bringing the truth of the gospel, sharing with words the truth of the gospel to those who are around you and to every area of life. But light also does a second thing that I think we can oftentimes overlook. Not, light not only illuminates, light also attracts that there's a beauty to light. You can be mesmerized by a fire or a candle, that there's a warmth that comes along with light. So there's a beauty, there's an attractiveness, there's a warmth, there's a hopefulness. And to follow Jesus means bringing the truth of the gospel, the light of the gospel, illuminating properties of the gospel into all of life, but to do it with a warmth and a joy and a humility and a hopefulness, an attractiveness. 
when I was growing up, my parents were immigrants from Korea, and part of what that meant was we didn't have a lot, and so vacations were very rare. I tell my kids, you guys are spoiled. You go on family vacations every summer. We went on like two family vacations our entire life. But the both times that we went on family vacation, we went to the same hotel. And so for me, this particular brand of hotel it has become synonymous with living the good life. Like, oh, I've made it because I'm at this hotel. Like, I'm living like a king. That hotel chain that as a kid got fixated in my mind as being living the life of the king, that whole to- hotel chain is Motel 6. <laughs> and so now every time I drive by Motel 6 or see an ad, I'm just like, oh, Motel 6. I love Motel 6. But there was a, um, an ad series that they did. It was kind of a tagline that went along with it. I don't know if they're still doing it, but back in the day, but I remember seeing it because it was Motel 6, but also the tagline was great. But the, uh, the ad campaign was this. It was Motel 6, we'll leave the light on for you. And I was like, leaving the light on for me? Like, <laughs> that's for me. That light is on for me. But I love that imagery because what does it mean to leave the light on for someone? Well, the light is meant to illuminate their path so they don't get lost as they're trying to journey home. But that light also means that there's somebody on the inside who can't wait to see you, who's waiting, that there's a welcome on the other side of the door. And when Jesus calls his disciples to be the light of the world, I think he has both of those in mind to illuminate the path so that other image bearers might be able to find their journey back home to life with God in Jesus Christ. But also to be the light that says, and on the other side, there's a whole family waiting for you. We've got a table laid out and we can't wait. We can't wait for you to arrive. The salt of the earth, the light of the world, Now, all of this, by the way, must have sounded absurd to that original audience because people listening to the Sermon on the Mount were a small, marginal, inconsequential group of largely poor people. They were not impressive. They were not the power brokers or influencers or educator of the elite. At this point, it's a small movement of a marginal people that are cast on the farthest outskirts of the largest empire that the world has ever seen in Rome and occupied people and oppressed people. And Jesus tells them, it's not Rome that's the light of the world. You're the light of the world. And the reason I point that out is because if you're here today and you feel inadequate as a person, (laughs) inadequate as a Christian, that there are all these ways that you feel like, well, this doesn't apply, couldn't apply to me. I want to tell you, Jesus wants to look you in the eye and says, you're the light of the world. Yeah, you. You're the salt of the earth. I've come specifically not to the centers of power in Rome. I've come to the margins where the weak and the poor, the inadequate and the overlooked, because it's in that weakness that the beauty of God, the strength of God is most clear. And so this call is a call that's given to every Christian, no matter how ordinary or inadequate you might feel. But here's another thing, and I got to keep moving. I'm about to go long. One, another quick thing here. I love the imagery of salt because one grain of salt ain't going to salt nothing. But you have a whole community of salt that after this service ends, 
is sent out into the city. That's how salt works. And so Jesus said to the most inadequate, the most overlooked, and says, you're the salt of the earth. And looks out at this community and says, you're the salt. You're the light. This is a call given to every Christian in your corner of the city. Jesus saying, start to dance to the distant beat of the kingdom of God there. So you can be a salt that you can be salt that prevents that decay, that brings the healing, that enhances the beauty. You can be a light that shares the truth of the gospel with warmth and with joy. So in your family, on your block, in that basketball court, in your workplace, in your industry, in your school, in your friend group, wherever it is that Jesus has already sent you to, you're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. Third and finally, let's look at what this all will require of us. What is it going to require? Because this is a hard task, isn't it? Because look, when you think about salt, how does salt do its work? In our apartment, we have our uh, oven, and on the side, we have this little jar that has our salt in it, so we just take the top off, and that's what we use to, to sprinkle. How does salt do its work? If, salt, if my salt stays in my jar on the side of my oven, and the salt stays there because it's afraid of getting impure, it's afraid of dissolving into the food, it's afraid of getting dirtied by the meat juices that will come out onto the pan, that salt will never do its work. As long as salt stays huddled together in self-protection, it will never do what Jesus has asked it to do. What does salt need to do? Salt needs to get out, and then it needs to get in. It needs to get out to where the darkness and the decay and the hurt and the wounds are. But it can't just get out and come back. It needs to get out, and then it needs to get in. And he needs to expend itself entirely. That light needs to infiltrate, get into the darkness and emanate and radiate and diffuse itself. That salt needs to enter in and dissolve. It needs to expend itself out in the place of darkness and hurt and decay. That's a hard task, isn't it? So how do we do that? Where do we get the resources to live a life that looks like that. Let me share you a story. Brian Stevenson, who's an attorney, he's also a criminal justice reform advocate. He started a group called the Equal Justice Initiative and also created the National Memorial for Peace and Justice, which is essentially a museum around the theme of lynching. And in his, uh, he has a TED Talk, which if you haven't watched it, uh, is a really great TED Talk. Uh, attorney in criminal justice, but also very much a Christian. And in that uh, TED Talk, he talks a little bit about what it was that made him realize that to do uh, his, his work as an attorney afar from people on death row wasn't going to work. And he tells a story about how he knew he needed to get proximate to those who were in that criminal justice system. And the story he tells us this. He says that when he was growing up, you know, he grew up with a lot of cousins and brothers and sisters. And there was a grandmother who was kind of like the matriarch of that entire family. And he was always kind of lost in the mix and a little bit unseen and forgotten and that sort of thing. And he says, you remember one afternoon he was over at his grandmother's place and he saw from across the room his grandmother just kind of staring at him the entire time. And he was like, all right, grandma, that's creepy. Can you stop doing that? Just kind of staring at him. And at some point later on in the afternoon, she says, Brian, come here. 
And so he's a little nervous. What did I do? Am I in trouble? And uh, he goes to the grandmother, and the grandmother says, Brian, I think you're amazing. I think you're going to do amazing things. I just want you to know that. And she gives him this big hug. And it's a kind of hug that almost feels like an assault after a moment. And he describes how he's, you know, kind of rustling. He's like, Am I, is this how it ends for me? Am I getting suffocated? And he would let him go. And later on in the afternoon, she'd look at Brian when he walks by. He said, Brian, can you still feel me hugging you? She'd be like, Grandma, what are you talking about? I said, come here then. We're not done. And she would come and hold him and hug him again and finally let him go. And by about the third or fourth time when she would say, Brian, do you still feel me hugging you? He realized that the correct answer is, yes, Grandma, I still feel you hugging me. And he says, that experience of proximity, of approximate love, is what changed the way that he understood his work as an attorney. So you can't keep a distance. You need to get close. You need to know the stories. You need to hear. You need to listen. You need to humanize. And the reason I tell that story is this. Look, until you've experienced someone else getting proximate to you, especially in the places of your own decay and darkness, and woundedness. Until you experience someone coming to you in your darkness, exactly in those places, and offering you an embrace that you never could deserve. Until you experience somebody, somebody doing that for you, you can never go out and be salt and light. Friends, you know what the gospel is? The gospel says that there is a king of the universe who got proximate to your darkness and decay, your sin, your ugliness, who got proximate to your woundedness to a point where he took on wounds himself. The gospel says that the king of the universe refused to stay far away in the safety of pristine light. But the light of the world left the light of heaven, entered into darkness, and we watched the light get extinguished from his eyes as he breathed his last breath on the cross for you. We watched as the one, only one who's a true salt of the earth get cast out, trampled underfoot, treated as worthless for you. Friends, where is the place of decay in your life? Where is that place of darkness? Where is the wound? Have you met Jesus there? Have you seen him come to you and offer you that embrace? Do you hear him asking you, hey, Abe, you still feel me hugging you? You still feel me hugging you? If you've experienced the embrace of Jesus Christ, no matter where you go, no matter where he sends you, of course you will be those who will be salt and light for the good of others. So friends, let's do that. Let's bless the city. Let's get out there with the full embrace of Jesus that we never earned and therefore we can never lose be salt and light, to dance, 
the drumbeat of the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Lord, help us, because it's a hard and scary thing to bring our darkness and our decay, our wounds to you. It's a scary thing to bring our sin and our rebellion, our rejection of you to you. And so, Lord, we name that and we ask for the help of your spirit so that we would experience, we would meet you, Jesus, exactly in those places. And we would see with the eyes of our heart Jesus Christ, the perfect eternal son of God, taking on the punishment and wrath of God, plunging himself into the darkness, taking on all of our darkness and decay and wounds, bursting out the other side with healing in his wings, with light, with truth. So Lord, help us give our lives to you even as we approach the table. And we give our lives to you yet again so that we can walk out of this place feeling your embrace no matter where we go. We'd encounter you and that your love would set our lives dancing. Help us, Lord, so we can be salt and light in your name. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.